Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were in a race? When's the last time you were in a race? Uh, for some of you, the question is easy to answer. We've got a bunch of uh, athletes in our church, high school athletes especially. Uh, you could probably tell me exactly when it was, and you can tell me your, your time too, those of you who run like cross country, but all the sports, you're always racing in practice and in games and so on. Uh, you know when your race was, but for some of us, it's a little harder. We've got to scratch our heads and think for a while. You know, for some of us, it might be years since we were last in some sort of a race. I asked myself my, my question the other day, and I was thinking about it for a while, and I thought, you know, it might be the last time I was in a race was when I played Mario Kart with my sons. Uh, I don't know if that counts, if I get credit for that, but you know, the video game with the little cars. That's probably the last time I, I can remember being in a race of some kind or another. According to this text, though, the passage we're looking at this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in a race right now. Maybe it's been decades since you crossed the literal finish line, but if you are a follower of Jesus, then right now you are in a race. That's what it says at the end of verse 1. That last part of the verse says, let us run with endurance the race. The race that is set before us, he says. And so if you're a Christian, you're in a race. And what race are we talking about? Well, it's the the faith race, the race of faith in Jesus Christ. Every believer runs this race. And today, we're going to follow the author's lead, and we're going to talk about how to run the race well. That's really what this passage is about. We're in this race, and he tells us how to run the race well. Uh, This fits right in with the context. We've been talking a lot about faith in the last several weeks in this part of Hebrews. We just spent uh, three Sundays in Hebrews chapter 11 and looked at a whole bunch of examples of faith, people who lived uh, their, their lives by their faith in God, and for New Testament people, their faith in Jesus Christ. And and so we've had all these examples. Now the author moves from all these examples where there's been kind of an implied exhortation, be like these people. Now in chapter 12, he comes right out and he says it. He says, do what they did. Do what they did. So we move to direct exhortation now. But he doesn't do it as simply as that. He doesn't just say, do what they did. Instead, he employs this sports metaphor. And there's an athletic metaphor that runs all through today's text and actually into some of next week's text too. Uh, and so he uses this, this metaphor from the sports world, and that's where this race comes in. Run the race of faith, he says, uh, like they did. Run it the way they did. But there's something we need. We need something to run the race the way they did. If we're going to run the race of faith well, and what we need is a specific quality called endurance. Endurance. And that's the main idea of this morning's sermon. We need endurance to run the race of faith well. Uh, That's what we see in verses 1 through 11. We're going to look at these verses now, and as we go through them, I'd like to show you five tips. So I spent some time with this passage this week, and I broke it out this way. I see five tips here that God wants us to follow. So I say tips, but they're not not optional. Uh, They're they're five things we need to do if we're going to run the race of faith with endurance, if we're going to run that race well, we need to do these five things. So so let's look at these five tips, and uh, we'll pull them all right from the text. Let's look at them together. So number one, the first tip for running the faith race with endurance uh, is to feed off the crowd. We need to feed off the crowd. We need to be inspired by the ones who came before us. That's the idea here. So verse one, it was read for us before. Go ahead and open your Bible or your Bible app, however you want to look at the text this morning. Uh, In verse one, the author takes one last look back 
at, the, at chapter 11, right? So we had 40 verses of all those examples. He takes one last look back. He, it's as if he points them and he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by them, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and then I'll jump down to the main verb of this little section, let us run. Since we've got all that, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, he says. So as you look at your Bible, grammatically, and that's actually, it's, this is true in the ESV, uh, all of this is one sentence. So in verses 1 and 2, there's one long sentence. It's a paragraph unto itself in most Bible translations. Uh, like a lot of sentences, it has just one main verb, and then all the other verbs support it. The main verb is the one I'm focusing on, run the race. And so it's a, it's, it's a main verb. He says, let us run the race. And then everything around it is telling us how to run the race. So as you run the race, do it this way. And the first do it this way that he gives us is the, the beginning of the chapter, uh, look around you, right? Since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, he says. So uh, to, to follow the sports metaphor, and, and this is exactly what he's doing. He says, look at the stands, look at the crowd. That, that's what that word cloud means. Sometimes this, this uh, verse gets a little muddled in our head. We see the word cloud, and we think the idea is that everybody's sitting on clouds. And we're talking about all the people who are sitting on clouds in heaven, uh, which they don't do, right? But, but that's the picture in our heads. They're sitting on clouds, and they're looking down on us. And, and, and uh, that's actually not how he's using the word here. It's cloud in the sense of a vast number. Um, it's not the most favorable comparison, but think of a cloud of gnats, right? In, in the summertime, there's just too many to count. And, and that's kind of the idea here. There's this vast cloud, this vast number of witnesses, he says. And that word witness is, is testifier. It's not witness like they're witnessing us. It's witness like you would witness about your faith to somebody. And so that's what they are. They are these examples. They're the testifiers that the life of faith is possible. You can do it. You can follow Jesus. Uh, just like these people. And so when he says, since we're surrounded by this vast cloud, he says, look at the crowd, look at the stands and feed off their energy. If you've ever been to any kind of a sporting event, right, you know what this is like. Right? When the, when the, that's why home field advantage is such a wonderful thing. When you're on your own home field, the crowd usually is, is on your side and they're, they're cheering for you and, they're, you, know, and you draw inspiration from them. You're inspired by the crowd. Uh, that, that's the idea here. I, I don't think... Uh, this verse is a verse that tells us the people in heaven are watching us. I, I personally don't interpret it that way. I think that presses the metaphor too far. The idea here instead in this verse is that we're supposed to look to them and draw inspiration. Just like, you know, like a football player or you know, any, any sport. You know, they, you know, maybe they're feeling a little down. I don't know if we can get that fourth down. We're going to go for it on, on fourth and one. We're going to go for it. And somebody on the stands will take a towel and start getting the crowd, right? They'll, and they get the crowds cheering. Why? So the players get inspiration. Right, also to make it so the defense can't hear the signals. But, but, but there's that home field advantage, that drawing inspiration from the crowd. That's the idea here. So he says, that's why I gave you all those examples. God wants you and me to be inspired by them. They were not perfect people. Right? We spent a little bit of time with that on some of them especially. They were not perfect people. But then again, neither are we. So that helps. That actually adds to the inspiration. Abraham was not perfect. And yet we can look at his faith and we can be inspired by it because he held on. He held on. He and all the others held on to their faith in the Lord, despite the challenges and the difficulties that they were facing. And so the application with this first one is a really pretty simple one. It's one I like to make a lot, which is keep reading. <laughs> keep reading your Bible. Right? That's one of the takeaways for us here. We need these stories. That's why chapter 11 does that. It's to show us. You know, that old, the Old Testament isn't just there to, to tell us history. It's there to inspire us. 
It's to show us that we can, just like those men and women did, we can follow the Lord. We can hold on to our faith through every trial and difficulty. I'll put in a plug here for broader reading, too. You know, this is where church history is helpful and biographies. You know, sometimes biographies of great Christians can just be so uh, inspiring to our faith. You know, you're like, well, King David, that was 3,000 years ago, but, well, how about, you know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Wilberforce or Amy Carmichael? There's so many of them out there, right? So, so sometimes that, those biographies of great men and women of the faith can be really helpful in this same thing we're talking about. They can help us run our own race with endurance by seeing what those who came before us uh, were able to do. So that's where he starts. That's tip number one. If you're going to run the race of faith with endurance, feed off the crowd. Be inspired by those who came before you. Number two, uh, the second tip for running the faith race is to run light. Run light. Get rid of anything that might slow you down or keep you from running your own best race. That's tip number two. Run light when you run the race of faith. Now, the thing about runners is that runners, and, and this is talking about runners. I'm, I'm going to weave some other sports in as, as we go along, but his direct example is, is running, right? He's the foot races from a, the ancient world. Humans have been competing with running as long as we go back. And, so, and the thing about runners, when you think about them, uh, is all they need is a good pair of shoes and a pair of shorts and a T-shirt, right? And that's our setting. They actually had even less in the ancient Olympics, they, say, they tell us. But, but for us, it's a pair of shoes, a, short, you know, a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. That's all you need to run. And, and that's, that's all you want, right? You don't want to bulk up with a lot of other equipment. It's going to slow you down. That's the idea. Uh, I ran cross-country uh, in high school. And uh, that was back a few years. It was before all the high-tech fabrics that uh, runners have now. Uh, there was no Under Armour uh, back then. You know, so if you were going to stay warm, you would be you know, heavy sweats in a T-shirt or heavy sweats in a sweatshirt, right? Sweatpants, sweatshirt, that kind of thing, gloves, all that sort of thing. Uh, and, uh, and what's more, I grew up in upstate New York, uh, at least as cold as, as we get it here in Iowa. And the season ran later. So school starts later where I grew up. They didn't start until after Labor Day, which meant the fall sports seasons ran later. So we were usually still running cross-country in the first week of November. Second week, if you were good. That didn't usually apply to me. But, uh, but, but you, we were still running in, in early November. And I can remember running. I can remember running sometimes in the snow, in shorts and a T-shirt. Right? Going to meets and running in shorts and a t-shirt with snow flurries flying. Uh, and and it, was, it was cold, right? And we had to run uphill both ways, too. It was, uh... <laughs> All right, not that last part, but the first part was true. Why? Why would we go to a meet, maybe an important meet that late in the season? It's like a qualifying meet, maybe a sectional finals, whatever it was. And, and why would we strip down to shorts and a t-shirt when it's 32 degrees out and there's flurries flying in the air? Because that's how you're going to run your best race. You're going to run, you're going to get too hot if you try to run with sweats anyway. By the time you get to mile one, you're going to regret you're wearing them. So you, you strip down to the lightest you can possibly run. That's the picture. All right, that's the picture here in verse one. Let me read the whole verse. I've, I've sampled pieces of it, but here's the whole verse. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So let's zero in on that, on that verse. Uh, there are three things there, three things there that we need to get rid of if we're going to run light, all right? So three things to get rid of. Uh, first is weights. He says, get rid of the weights. Lay aside every weight, he says in verse 1. Uh, what are these? These are the things that are harmless, uh, 
but we don't need them. They're harmless enough, but, but we don't really need them. The, the bulky sweatshirt I mentioned a minute ago would be a, a good example, or, or hand weights. Right? Sometimes runners will train with hand weights or ankle weights right, to build up their muscles a little bit more, but you're not going to run your race with those. You're going to take those off. They're weights. And so there are things, to me, these are a picture, and I think this is what the author intends. They're, thing, they're, things of, they're, they're a picture of things that are, aren't necessarily bad. They're neutral, but they still slow us down. They slow us down in the race with the Lord. Uh, I think every one of us has to figure out for ourselves what these are, right? Because they're neutral, I can't tell you what yours are. You you have to figure it out with the prompting and the help of the Holy Spirit and some soul searching. But what are those things that, they're they're not bad things, but they slow you down. They keep you from running with the intensity and the passion that you ought to have with the Lord. Um, Your smartphone might fall into that category. Mine feels like that sometimes. Maybe it's a social media account. Maybe it's a sports team. Uh, maybe it's a, a hobby that's taken over your life. Uh, whatever it is, it's, it's become a distraction. It, it, it's something that's keeping you from running as, like you're supposed to run with the Lord. And what the author says, what God tells us, is he says, get rid of it. Strip it off. Lay it aside. Uh, the second thing, so we got the weights. Get rid of those. The second thing to lay aside are the, are the sins. The sins. Uh, now, these are not neutral. These are harmful. Right? So these are bad things. And you see this in the translation. Um, this translation says the sins that cling so closely. Uh, the verb means to ensnare or trap or entangle. I think you see that in the NIV, actually. If anyone's looking at an NIV, it says the sin that so easily entangles. And so the idea here, sin doesn't just, the idea here is that sin doesn't just slow us down. Sin makes us fall flat on our faces. The sin that we don't repent of and we keep in our lives, that sin makes us fall flat on our faces. It's like trying to run a race with you know, chains around your ankles. Right? You're kind of, you know, imagine trying to do that. If you start breaking up any, making up any speed at all, you're going to fall. You're going to fall over and hurt yourself. And so what do you do with it? Get rid of it. Get rid of it, he says. Run light. Run light. Don't, don't give sin any place in your life. Instead, repent of it, turn away from it, submit it to the Lord, strip it off. Get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. So we got the weights, we got the sins. There's actually a third one I see here. The third one thing we need to get rid of is comparisons. Comparisons. I see this one at the very end of verse one. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run the race that's set before you. Like I said, I ran cross country in, in high school, and uh, I, was, I was kind of a middle-of-the-pack sort of a guy. Uh, by my senior year, I, I had worked myself up. I would score fourth or fifth. And New York was very similar to Iowa. The top five runners would score points for their team. And uh, I usually was fifth. Once in a while, I'd bump up to that fourth spot. There was a sophomore who always gave me a run for my money, but I could beat him sometimes. And so, so that was my goal. When I went out on the course, I was going to finish way back in the middle somewhere and uh, try to score as high as I could for my team. That, that was my goal. One of my very best friends, probably my best friend in high school, was a guy named Dave. And Dave was excellent. He was just top-notch runner. Um, New York did it different than here, but I'm sure that he would have went to state if New York had a state meet that everybody went to. He was always, he held school records. He'd always win. He'd always win for us. He'd often win the meets. Top, just really great runner. He's a good friend of mine, very good friend of mine. And so when we'd go to, to races, especially ones that mattered, I wanted to know how my friend was doing. Right? I really wanted, you know, how, I wonder how Dave's doing today. Is he going to beat that guy from Boston Spa who always tries to get him? You know, I mean, that, that was what, what, what we'd talk about, what we'd think about. But when the gun went off, when the race started, I could not afford to, stop, to sit there or stand there thinking about Dave. 
Right? I couldn't spend any more time watching my friend's race. I had to kind of watch him disappear like he would do. And then I had to focus on my race. I couldn't focus on my friend's race. Here's the point. Some of us get all caught up in other people's races. We do. We, and, and it slows us down. It keeps us from running our own best race. And, and so I think we need to get rid of this one too. It's why he's so specific about it. Run your race, the race set out before you. Don't worry about that person who's got a better, a better house than you do or a better job or you know, their marriage is in a better spot these days or they're more physically healthy than you are. Whatever you're tempted, right? whatever you're tempted to compare yourself to when you compare yourself to other people, run your own race. Don't run somebody else's race. So strip that off too. Strip off the comparisons, strip off the sins, strip off the weights. Run light. Run light when you run the, faith, the, the race of faith. That's tip number two. Uh, the third tip uh, for running the race with Jesus, uh, with endurance, uh, is to focus on Jesus. Focus on him. If we're going to run the race well, we need to turn our eyes and focus them on Jesus himself. Eyes up. Eyes up. There probably isn't a running coach on the planet who hasn't said that at some time or another. Get your eyes up. I know my coach used to say it all the time. I guess I was especially bad at it. Don't stare at your feet. Don't stare at the ground. Certainly don't stare at the runners around you. Look where you're going. Get your eyes up at that finish line, at that goal, at where it is you're headed. And that, that's what the next three verses, I think, and it flows right out of that first verse and, and I, through verse four I'd like to cover now. I think that's the point here. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Focus on him. Um, let's keep reading. I'll, I'll pick up at the end of verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And now here's more things that are attendant to that. Uh, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame of the cross, not worrying about it is what that means, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Stop there for a moment. Uh, one of the best ways to run the race is to look at Jesus, right? That, that's what, what he says here. So he tells us run the race, and then he says, look at Jesus. Run the race while and as and by looking at Jesus. In particular, let me group the things he says here. In particular, focus on two things. Uh, first, who he is. Focus on who he is. He is the founder and the perfecter of your faith, he says. Right? And, by, and faith here is being used in that idea of what we, what we believe in him and our salvation. It's really it's a catch-all phrase for our salvation. He's the founder and the perfecter of it. Uh, another translation says author and finisher. Uh, the point is, he's the one who started it. <laughs> he's the one who started it. We didn't decide to come to Jesus. Jesus came to us. Right? That's true at the individual level. He called us to himself while we were still sinners. He loved us before we first loved him, it says in Romans. Uh, it's also true at the meta level, at the big picture level, right? We'll celebrate it when we get to Christmas in a few weeks, right? Jesus came to earth. Nobody was, was looking for him. Very few were even waiting for the Messiah. And so he's the, he's the author of it. He's the one who started it. Uh, he's also the perfecter, right? The perfecter or the finisher of our faith. Uh, we've actually talked about perseverance quite a bit in earlier chapters in uh, in Hebrews, and I think he means for us to remember those conversations about how he holds us in his hand and he will hold, hold us fast and bring us all the way through to the end. He will, he will finish what he started. God will finish. Jesus will finish what he started in your life. Uh, Philippians 1 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to uh, completion, Paul writes. And so focus on that. Focus on who he is in your life. He's the, he's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the, the, the author and the, and the perfecter, the finisher 
of your faith. Hold on to him. And then also, the other one is focus on what he did. So focus on who he is and focus on what he did. And, and, and specifically, actually, it's not so much focus on what he did, which we'll talk about later with the cross. It's focus on his, his example in suffering, which is what we've been talking about. So, so look at verses 3 and 4. He says, consider him, the him is Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, making us think of his whole life, but it all culminating in the passion and the cross, so that, so why would you consider him? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So are you suffering? Well, Jesus suffered too, he reminds us. He suffered too. So, so look at him. Look at how he endured suffering and, and draw strength from it. Uh, after all, he's an even better example than the cloud of witnesses. Right? We always think of this passage of the cloud of witnesses, but they very quickly disappear in, uh, in, in, in comparison to the light of Jesus. So yeah, Abraham and Moses were pretty good examples, but Jesus is way better. Right? Jesus never stumbled. He never sinned in any way. He never fell short in any way. And so he tells us, look at him. Right? Are you struggling? Well, Jesus also struggled. Are you facing hostility? He talks about the hostility. Are you under threat of persecution? Or maybe even just, maybe it's not even because of your faith. Maybe you're just being treated unfairly. Uh, well, face it the way Jesus faced it, he says. Uh, and then verse 4, I love verse 4. I, I, I think the point of verse 4 is to just give us some perspective. It's, it's a, little bit of a, a, a little bit of a rebuke, but it's the most gentle rebuke with maybe even a little bit of a smile. You know, he says, uh, you know, yeah, we do suffer, but hey, we haven't been crucified yet. Right? You, you haven't endured to the point of, of, of blood yet. You haven't shed your blood yet, but Jesus did. Right? So, so as much as we feel like we're suffering, look at him. He suffered more, and he held on, and he overcame, and he endured. He despised the shame, and then he was exalted. So you actually get an established pattern here as well for, that we look to and draw strength from. Right? So when Jesus faced, he, he went through great suffering and difficulties and challenges, most of them for us, and then on the other side, he's exalted. You see that laid out there in that, those two verses. And there's, it's, it, like we're, we're looking forward to the same sort of a thing is the idea. So look to him. Focus on, on him. Eyes up. Focus on Jesus and draw your strength from him. That's tip number three. Number four, the fourth tip for running the race of faith is to remember who you are. Remember who you are. If we're going to run the race with endurance, we need to remember our identity, who we are in Christ. And, you know, I was thinking, this is where I say the athletic, he doesn't drop the athletic metaphor, not yet, because this is a big part of sports, right? Coaches will tell their players and their runners this sort of thing all the time. What do they say? You know, they had the big pregame huddle. Remember who you play for. Remember who you represent. You're not just out there for yourself. You're out there for, well, for, your, for each other in a team sport, but you're out there for your school, for your city, for your country, if it's the Olympics. You're not just there for yourself. You, you represent others when you step out onto that field. And, and I think that's a big part of the emphasis on identity in this next section I'm going to look at with you now. It's, it's verses 5 through 11. He's, everything he says here starts with a reminder of who we are in Christ. So, so let's look at the uh, verses 5 and 6. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Then he quotes a passage. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Stop there for a minute. 
he tells us, he reminds us, we are God's children. You see how, how the, you know, have you forgotten? It's another way of saying, let me remind you. Right? You are God's children. That's the identity we need to remember. And so he says this in verse 5, if you've forgotten that God addresses you as sons, and then he quotes another Old Testament passage, which he does a lot in Hebrews, like we've talked about. This one's a little unusual because it's not a psalm. A lot of his quotes have come from psalms. This one's actually from Proverbs. You could go look it up. It's Proverbs 3, uh, verses 11 and 12, this, this verse that he quotes there. And it's a verse about discipline, uh, we'll come back to, we'll, we'll talk about the discipline part in a minute. That's the fifth point. Uh, but f- the first thing we have to see is the more important, actually, application he makes about it, which is that we are God's beloved children. That's the piece he's emphasizing here. We are his sons and daughters. That's why we're subject to his discipline. We are his sons and daughters. Uh, he's, he uses the word sons. Let me, let me say a word here about uh, the gender language. It's just warm enough. I don't need this. Let me say a word about the, um, the gender language here. Uh, he will keep saying sons, right? So you'll see that. He does that. And you say, why does he do that? Well, the, he does that because in first century Rome, and I remember this issue coming up at some point recently in the last couple of years. I think it was First John. Um, but but to, to recap, the reason he does that is that in first century Rome, sons had more rights than daughters. We don't do it that way, but they did. Sons legally had more rights than daughters. They'd inherit more land, uh, control over the family, all these different kinds of things. That's just how it was. And so our author has to say sons because the point he wants to make is that we are full children of the Father. Because, we're, we're, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the full rights of fully entitled, and I don't know if entitled is the right word, but fully righted children. Uh, daughters didn't have that in that culture. So if he had said you are sons and daughters in that, it would have been confusing because daughters in their culture didn't have all the rights. So he says to men and women, it's a book written to men and women, he says to men and women alike, you are all sons. He's not gender confused or something like that. He is saying you have the son, you have the full rights and privileges of a son. And, and he really, that, that's what he focuses on. It's really not so much rights in this passage. It's the way God treats us and thinks about us. You see what he says, what's, what's quoted in the, the proverb he quotes, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Right? Men and women alike, he loves us. He chastises every son he receives. And so the father, you know, again, remembering who we are, remembering our identity as we approach all this, the father in heaven loves us. He accepts us. He makes us his own beloved children, uh, the text reminds us. Which means as we run this race, we run this race from a position of privilege. Right? We're, we're not party crashers. We're not party We are children of the king. Right? We're, we're, we're varsity. I don't know if, that's a, if that works as, as well as it's supposed to, but we're, we're, we're full members of the team is the idea. Right? We're children of the king. And so there's this privilege. We run this race, and that helps us with endurance. Right? The Father loves me. The Father accepts me. He's not flagellating me. He's not beating me here. He loves me. Uh, but then with that also comes responsibility. And I think this is also part of what he's saying as far as the endurance goes. Uh, every privilege comes with, uh, with responsibility. And in this case, the responsibility here is that we represent him comes back to this idea of who we, who we represent. We represent our Father. We run for Him. And, and that actually motivates us. If you think about it, that motivates us. 
it's not just about you and me, right? This is one of the problems with this kind of atomized individual faith. You know, it's just me and Jesus. No, it's not just you and Jesus. There's a whole bunch of people watching. There's other people watching. Other Christians, other believers who are struggling in their own faith are watching. I'm watching you. You're watching me. We're watching each other to see how we're doing with this thing. Um, Your kids are, are watching to see how you handle that bad news your family just got. That, that person that you've been mentoring, you know, maybe in your small group or through some other ministry, or maybe it's just informal, that person you've been mentoring is, is watching. You know, you've been talking to her about faith, and, and now she sees you're, you've got some, some hard things going on. She's watching to see how you process it. That friend you've been witnessing to, sometimes it's non-believers, right? That, that friend you've been witnessing to is, is watching. You know, he knows what you're going through now, and so he's watching. Oh, I wonder how you're going to handle this hard thing now. Let's see how that Jesus stuff helps you get through this hard thing. What's the point? The point is we don't just represent ourselves as we run the race. We represent our team, but even more than our team, the team falls apart here. We represent our Father, which is where the author takes us. We represent our Lord. We represent the Father. And so that also helps us. We remember who we are. We run from a position of privilege, but that privilege also bears with it a responsibility. So keep running. Keep running the race with endurance. Become part of that cloud of witnesses, right? We kind of circle back to that. We, we get to be part of that. As we overcome our own struggles, we become part of somebody else's cloud of witnesses is, is, uh, is part of what's going on here. Finally, uh, the, the fifth tip, number five, for running the faith race uh, and running it with endurance is to embrace the Father's training program. We need, we need to accept and embrace what he's doing in our lives. We need to accept the Father's training program if we're going to get through, if we're going to do this with endurance. And you know, again, coaches, coaches know all about this one too. Uh, if, if, if their athletes will do what they tell them to do, right? Because most coaches know what they're doing. Uh, they, don't, they don't keep the job for very long if they don't, right? If, if their athletes will do what they tell them to do, they will get better. They will improve if they listen to their coach. But if they resist the training program, they will not get better. Right? Those of you who are runners, if coach says, go run three miles and then hit the weight room, and instead you run one mile and you hit the vending machines, you might feel better this afternoon, but you're not going to feel so good when it comes time to run the race. Right? If you reject the training program, you're not going to do as well as you should do. And I, I think that's a big part of what's going on here in, in really the rest of this passage. I'll, I'll pick up with verse 7. It's all about endurance. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. See, it's for discipline. I'm going to just, just so we're hearing this, I'll, I'll say this again in a minute, but this word discipline, I'd like to invite you to substitute the word training because that is how this word is, is used. It is for training that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. We just talked about that. For what son is there whom, whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who trained us, disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? We'll stop there. So the key word, the key here is to understand that that word discipline uh, does not always mean punishment. So a lot of us, we hear the word discipline, and especially in a parenting uh, context here, uh, like this is talking about parenting, a lot of times we will, we will see the word discipline and we'll think punishment. And we'll think, well, so this is saying God is going to punish me. God will punish me for my sins. That's what this is saying. Um, I see the appeal of that, especially as a type A personality, but uh, that would contradict the gospel, 
right? Jesus was punished for your sins, so you don't have to be punished for your sins. That's the whole point of the cross. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not that idea. Now, he will use circumstances to trim things out of our lives. There's the pruning principle from John 15. But this, this same word, this Greek word here, what it actually means is training or instruction. And sometimes with this Greek word, uh, you know, sometimes with training, with instruction, sometimes punishment will be part of it. But the word doesn't mean punishment. So punishment might be part of it. I can remember running some laps back when I played football, before I came to my senses and realized I wasn't very good at football uh, and switched. Uh, but we used to run lots of laps. You know, oh, you missed the tackle, go run, go run two laps or whatever. Uh, sometimes that kind of punishment, but, but even there, it's not punitive. It's not to hurt the person. It's to train the person, even as parents. If you, are puni- if you punish your child for you know, stealing something, say, for example, um, you, you, your goal isn't to hurt your child. Your goal is to train your child. Right? So even that sense, when, when we think of discipline in the terms of punishment, we're not trying to punish our child like we punish a, a murderer or something. No, we're trying to train that child so that he or she won't do that again. Right? So, so, that's, so the, the, this, I, this word means training. Right? Train them. And, and that's what he's saying here. We're God's children, and so he's going to train us. You don't train somebody else's kids, right? We don't train other people's children. I mean, usually you don't have permission to do that. You know, maybe, maybe a little bit in the church we can help each other. But, but when it comes right down to actual discipline and training, that that's falls to each parent to do. Well, we're God's children. <laughs> and so the fact that he's working in our lives is actually a reinforcing, it's a reinforcement of the principle. He's training us. Why? Because he loves us. If he didn't train you, well, you might worry. <laughs> but he does. You might worry he doesn't love you, but he does love us, which is why he's using these things. So, so we're God's children. God's going to train us. But then here comes the hard part. God's training program isn't easy. That, that's the hard part. God's training program isn't easy. In fact, sometimes it's really hard. This is where we struggle. Right? Sometimes his training program is really hard. And, and do you see how our, our text is situating the hard things we face in this wonderful context? He says, listen, those struggles... That the suffering, the hostility you're facing, the persecution, uh, don't just attribute that to, the, to fate, right? That's not just fate. That's not bad luck. That's, that's your father's training program. He's using those things to knock off the hard edges and the, the selfishness and the sin and whatever, the weakness, the spiritual flabbiness, whatever it might be. He, he's using those things to make us stronger is, is what the author is telling us here. He uses the challenges and the difficulties to build us up uh, to build us up on the, on the inside, spiritually, our spiritual stamina, our spiritual strength, you might say. And then look, look at what the author is going to do in the last two verses of our text. He's going to bring us back to trust. I think that's the issue here with these two verses. Uh, it's trust. He says, you can trust him with this training program. You can trust him. That's 10 and 11. If I think about my, my, uh, my sports analogy here, if an athlete does not trust her coach, she's not going to do what the coach says. Right? That's one of the big problems. When coaches lose their, the trust of their, of their players or their runners or whatever it is, it, it's hard to keep them going because they don't trust you. They're not going to want to follow your program if they don't trust you. And so what the author is saying to us here is you can trust. You can trust your father. Even if you don't like his training program, you can trust that he means good for you. That's verses 10 and 11. And uh, he connects it back to, to human fathers. He says, and for, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, human dads and moms, but he disciplines us for our good 
that we may share his holiness. For the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So our earthly fathers did the best they could. That's what he says there, right? They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. They did the best they could. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes as a parent, right? If you're a parent, you did too. You know the feeling. We make lots of mistakes. Thank, thank the Lord he forgives us. Thank the Lord our kids mostly forgive us. Uh, but our Heavenly Father, he doesn't really, this isn't a parenting passage, that's just the offset for this. Here's, but our Heavenly Father, he says, never makes a mistake. He didn't just, he's not just up there kind of going, oh, I wonder what she needs now, like we, we do sometimes. No, he never makes a mistake. He trains us perfectly. He disciplines us for our good, it says. Why? So that we may share in his holiness. You see his goal. Right? His, his, and what we're, we see here is his motives are always pure. Right? Sometimes as parents, we, we don't, our motives aren't always pure. Sometimes we just want them to be quiet so we can watch the game or read a book or whatever it is. Right? Sometimes, our, our, you know, I'm, sometimes we're selfish or lazy or whatever it is, but, but God never disciplines us imperfectly. That's, that's his point in verse 10. God's training is perfect, and that's why his training always yields a good result, verse 11. Right? Some of the things we do as human parents don't work. Right? Maybe you can relate. But God's training program, what does his training program do? Verse 11, it always yields godliness, right? If we cooperate with his training program, if we keep our faith in him, if we press on through those hard things, uh, yes, it seemed painful at the time, right? There's no Pollyanna view here. Oh, it was painful at the time, he says. But later on, later on, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to all those who were trained by God's program. That, that, that's the promise there. And so what we're being invited to do here is trust. You can trust him, he says. You can embrace what the Lord is doing in your life, not because you like it or even because you can see where it's headed, but, you, but because you believe in his goodness. Right? So it's not rooted in the circumstance, it's rooted in the character of the father that's doing the disciplining, the, the parent who's doing the training. And so, yeah, things are hard now, but by faith we accept that we're in good hands and we can embrace the Lord's training. A lot of times when uh, people run long races, not the little three-mile ones like I used to do, but, but the long ones, marathons, half marathons, that kind of stuff, a lot of times, maybe you've seen this, a lot of times they'll have uh, refreshment stations, refreshment stations along the course. I read somewhere the uh, New York Marathon's being run this morning. I think it was this morning. And uh, they'll have refreshment stations all along the way. And uh, a lot of times it's just like a table with uh, cups of water. Right? Maybe some volunteers will hold out the water as you go by, but sometimes they get fancy, right? Sometimes they'll have sugar cubes and energy drinks and maybe even fruit, you know, apples, bananas, that sort of thing. And, and the goal with all of it, whether it's just water or it's something much more than that, the goal is to just keep those runners going a little more, right? I mean, it's not, it's not dinner. <laughs> it's just a, a little something, something to keep them going for a few more miles. And I was thinking, you know, in the context of this passage today, I think communion's kind of like that. Communion is like a spiritual refreshment station. Uh, you and I are running a race. We're running a race, and it's a long race, right? It's the race of faith, and uh, there's lots of challenges and difficulties. Sometimes we feel tired and worn down, uh, but then we come to the table. We come to the Lord's table, and he refreshes us here. He refreshes us with the, the bread and the cup. It's not, it's not lunch. You'll go home and have lunch later, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a spiritual refreshment. Right? The bread reminds us that Jesus gave his body to be broken in our place, that he, he, God came to earth, became a human being, 
uh, flesh like us in that sense, and yet still being fully God. And, and he, he gave his own body to be broken because of our sins. He shed his own blood, the cop reminds us. He shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sins, the penalty that we could never have paid in any kind of adequate way. It would have never been enough. And so he paid it for us with his own blood. The cup reminds us of that. The bread reminds us of his body. The cup reminds us of his blood. 